Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. Today, we're honored to have with us, as our guest of honor, Sachiko Imoto is a senior vice president at the Japan International Cooperation Agency, JICA, where she has responsibilities in JICA's work across the world in health, education, agriculture, and industry. Nice meeting you. Thank you. It's great to have you here, and thank you for also coming to CSIS. Yesterday, this is mid-April, it's the week of the IMF World Bank Spring Meetings, among other things, and we're just so delighted to have you come and, and be with us. Let me just say a quick word. Here at CSIS, we have launched this bipartisan alliance on global health security, and this is the podcast associated with that, Common Health. And one of the important streams of work is focused on U.S.-Japan cooperation in health security. And it's our belief that the U.S.-Japan relationship is an exceptionally strong condition at the moment, and there are many reasons for that, and that it's deepening rapidly. Uh, security is a consideration, geopolitical considerations, regional considerations, global considerations. Ukraine's not is part of this as well. And part of that dialogue, which we've just begun and will carry forward with several other dialogues in Tokyo back here over the next nine months or so, is to try to develop these ideas of where can the cooperation be deepened most profitably and most meaningfully. And so having you here to have this kind of conversation is just terrifically useful. We, we believe that in this period, we need to focus on alliances, focus on diplomacy, focus on partnerships that can be developed over this time. And so this is just a great opportunity for us. We're about a month out from the G7 summit. The health ministerial will be held in Nagasaki May 13th and 14th. The summit, the leaders' summit will be held in Hiroshima, May 19th to 21st. You've been very busy, many other parts of your government very busy in preparing for this. Let's start with one broad question, which is what can we expect from the Japanese presidency this year of the G7 as it pertains to health? Thank you. Uh, first of all, Steve, thank you very much for having me here. It's also a great opportunity for me to speak with you about important agenda, this important agenda for everybody which is global health, and how Japan and U.S. can contribute together to you know, this important public common goods. So expectation from Japanese presidency of G7 on health, I strongly hope that Japanese presidency will bring reassurance of global solidarity against public health threats. With strengthening the global health architecture, 
and renewed commitment to achieve universal health coverage through health system strengthening in each individual country. COVID-19 revealed that the current health system, both at national and international level, were not equitable, and it had some deficiencies. So the key of the way forward is how we can assure equity and sustainability in the system. Now for the global architecture, negotiations are going on for a pandemic treaty and you know, regulations and so on. And the concept of universal health coverage is that all people can benefit from effective and high-quality healthcare, which is affordable. So it's inherently addressing the equity. With renewed commitment to these two areas together, they will serve as a foundation to make the world better prepared against health threats and more inclusive in health gain. And how to ensure equitable access to medical countermeasures, for example, acceleration of the progress toward UHC, and mobilization of funding, including private financing, for global health challenges, there are so many, are among the key issues on the table for the summit. And Japan is keen to collaborate with other G7 members, as well as other G20 and global partners. So this is a very good occasion for us to move further in this direction. And Japan has always been a vocal advocate for health as a foundation of human security. And Japan has contributed in shaping global health agenda in the past G7 presidencies. For example, in Kyushu-Okinawa summit in 2000, Japan took up infectious disease as an important agenda and led to creation of a new funding mechanism, which eventually turned into the Global Fund, which is a very, very important mechanism now. And broad-based health system strengthening was promoted in Hokkaido-Toyako Summit in 2008. So UHC with resilience against pandemic threat was focused in Iseshima Summit in 2016, reflecting Ebola pandemic in West Africa. So with all these track records and the commitment, I can assure you that the global health will be highlighted once again in Hiroshima Summit this year. Let me just comment a bit on what you just said. The consistent support of universal health coverage as a foundational dimension of human security, that has been, as you point out, this is over 20 years now. This has been yes. a dominant theme, great consistency. And this is a, an important year, you could argue. The Japanese are in the G7 presidency. You have this moment to push this. We're also going to see the high-level meeting in September on the margins of the UN General Assembly dedicated to the UHC. So the other thing I'd add is it within the U.S. government in the past, there was a certain resistance to this idea. There was a certain neuralgia about embracing this. And that seems to have changed. We seem now to be much more in, cl in much closer alignment in our development priorities in favor of whether you call it universal health coverage or you call it primary health care, basic community services, like, and we now have Atul Gawande as the assistant administrator for uh, health at USAID. In some ways, he's one of your counterparts, right? And he is pushing this idea. He's, you know, he's a legendary figure, an intellectual around these issues. So 
it's a promising moment. My question to you is, we know that resources are still scarce. Mm -hmm. So we need to be somewhat realistic. But from your standpoint on the UHC, with the opportunity that the G7 is providing and the high-level meeting in September, what would be what would the best outcome look like as we get to the end of the year from your standpoint on UHC and getting others rallied around that? What would that look like? The first thing, you know, we really have to have solidarity. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to cooperate to have the real gain in health. So we do need political commitment. And that is the foremost important thing. And the finance side, we have also the momentum that there is a lot of interest from private sector also, mm-hmm. how best they can also utilize their fund for the global common goods. For example, in G7 Summit, we understand that there is another theme which will be discussed is like impact investing. Mm-hmm. So we have this trend that a lot of investment is now trying to address the social common goods. And one of it is health. And health, in the areas of health, there are a lot of actors who have been really active in making change on the ground. So with this track record, how far we have come and how far we have to go, that will, I hope, really mobilize people's will and also the funds to the common world. And now there is also this atmosphere that we really have to coordinate mm-hmm. and cooperate to make most out of it. The needs are so big, but as you said, there are a lot of other competing needs also. And uh, we do have to prioritize and ma- make it efficient. So with this series of events, and meetings and so on, I hope that we will see the common understanding, what are the priorities, how we can mobilize our funds from private sectors and also domestic mobilization in lower and middle income countries so that they can make their systems more functioning and sustainable. And that will serve to be the good platform to deliver universal health coverage. Now, there's going to be discussion at the G7 and, and on into the fall around financing. Mm-hmm. You mentioned finance. The pandemic fund is, a, is an issue that's very much under discussion now. It's getting launched. It's in its first phase. Tell us a bit about how you're looking at that and how, what is it that JICA does now or into the future in parallel with or in support of the pandemic fund? How would that work? Pandemic fund is the fund focusing on you know, PPR, preparedness, prepa- you know, and so on. And that is very unique. We have other schemes which addresses different needs in health sector, but usually when emergencies happens, for example, any kind of pandemic, then the resource will be mobilized into that direction. And preparation or you know, that kind of continuous investment gets you know, behind the scene, right? And the pandemic fund, it is addressing this PPR. We can solely utilize this fund for the purpose of PPR. So that always gives a clear direction if you want to utilize this fund. So if it's being used in terms of preparedness and response for pandemics, 
It could be investing in surveillance. It could be yes. Investing in health workforce right. as well. Right. Right. We know that there were through the first call for three hundred million dollars mm-hmm. of resources generated proposals mm-hmm. totaling something on the order of seven billion dollars. So the demand is huge. Huge. Yes. I mean, we learned something from mm-hmm. this about how much thinking is going on about trying to build, rebuild the capacities uh, going forward. Very encouraging. So you know, what we can do on the ground is, of course. For example, JICA has a lot of projects going on on the ground with you know, health ministries and so on in developing countries. We can support them to prioritize some of the, the work they should be doing. And you know, based on these refurnishing their priorities and uh, their work plans and so on, they can have a very persuasive you know, proposal and submit, to, submit it to the pandemic fund. And once they get uh, finance from that, maybe we might be able to co-finance some part of the uh, proposal, or uh, we can also invite other partners joining in this proposal. I mean, implementation stage, so that we can make it more sustainable and you know accelerate the process. So, pandemic fund, I hope it's going to cut be the catalytic role also because. Being chosen by pandemic fund means that you know there there is a political will commitment from the government of that you know proposed countries or agencies, so that that would be a good platform for us also to you know invest. So that should be generating you know I mean making the impact bigger, right? Mm-hmm. And I hope that process would encourage other government in lower and middle income countries. To, yes, to address the issues more seriously and make the political commitment. So we started out talking a bit about U.S.-Japan relationship and how important that is. It's in a very strong position. It's getting stronger. It's deepening. The security dimensions are important. On health security, what, what do you think are the areas that, where you're going to see a deepening and an expansion of cooperation that will be the most valuable? What would you say? Well, first, let me recall that U.S. and Japan had an excellent record of collaboration, working together in dealing with global health challenges. We had this U.S.-Japan common agenda in 1990s, and that was very instrumental in increasing Japan's contribution to global health through official development assistance. It really played a role, such as promotion of reproductive health, Mm -hmm dealing with HIV AIDS and promotion of global polio eradication and so on. So U.S. and Japan partnership really paved the way for Japan's prominence in global health diplomacy. And now it's really the high time we revive this kind of relationship. And now I see that U.S.-Japan cooperation can contribute to strengthening of global health architecture through co-financing to common platforms such as CEPI for R&D, for example, mm-hmm. and Pandemic Fund also you mm-hmm. mentioned for supporting capacity development in the lower and middle income countries in prevention and preparedness. And also, we, uh, we are also a huge contributor to Contingency Fund for Emergency of WHO, which is going to support when you know, the emergency happens. 
So a new platform may be proposed in you know, coming G7 and so on to ensure equitable access to medical countermeasures, which can provide opportunity for joint support on the ground. And we need to make sure that our joint investment leverage investments coming from also other partners. So with the U.S. and Japan strong partnership, we hope that we can provide a kind of motivation or commitment from other partners, including private sector. So just for a moment, I mean, you're suggesting there may be the launch in the G7 of a new platform for vaccines, therapies, diagnostics. They are under discussion, I understand. It's under yes, discussion. Yes. That may also involve some tech transfer dimension of this. Yes. How would JICA or USAID or other organizations, if, if there was teamwork here between the U.S. and Japan and other allies in trying to make sure that there's equitable access and that there's some form of tech transfer, how, would, how might that work? What could JICA be doing? What could USAID be doing that would be helpful? First, we can uh, jointly uh, support human resource development, which is foremost important. Yeah. And we can also create a, a good network for surveillance. And uh, we can also ensure, with all this you know, mechanism going on, we can ensure equitable delivery. I mean, access is one thing which is very important. Yes. But delivery and use of these you know, new counter, uh, medical countermeasures or vaccines or whatever, they are also very important. And making very trusted human resources, professional on the ground, and making the system work, and creating the trust among communities or parties involved, that is one part which is very important for you know, ensuring equitable access. So I think U.S., who has a lot of um, projects going on in the health sector in developing countries, and JICA, who also work in, in many countries, we can really discuss on the ground. In each country, the situation is different. So how best we can work together, it's so different. We have one good example in Ghana that the U.S. and Japan is collaborating in human resource development, and that was initiated by, by our offices on the ground. So it's really making the system work in Ghana. So that is our strength that USID mm -hmm. work on the ground, JICA work on the ground, so we can make, tailor make our uh, cooperation on the ground that would really work in the situation, in the context. So I hope we can really work in this way to make sure that we can really deliver the results on the ground. Thank you. A couple of other questions. You mentioned in an earlier conversation that you're doing a review, uh, a national review of overseas development assistance. What does this mean for Japan? Say a bit about that. Is this like every 10 years you, you do this sort of review? It's been 10 years since the first you know, ODA charter was you know, uh, enacted. And I don't think it's periodical. I mean, we have to revise it, but it's not like, you know, 10 oh, years. Yeah. yeah. But this timing was really important because we went through so many changes in the international order. And we have more 
comparing to 10 years ago, we have emerging donors who are very, very active. And we had this situation pandemic and uh, like Ukraine, which really changed the, our concept about international rules and orders, right? Mm -hmm. So we really have to rethink actually what ODA, Official Development Assistance and Development Cooperation can do in such a complex in a situation. Disordered, in a yes. disordered and insecure situation. Right, right. So there is, there is a greater sensitivity around how to promote stability. Right, like, you know, how we can assure free and open, you know, and fair world based on the rule of law. So that is, you know, becoming very, very prominent in the new ODA charter. But of course, the still important factor remains such as human security. I mean, you know, for us, that is the guiding principle and it, it will not change. In the end, you know, I mean, we need a world order, freedom, which, in which the humankind, I mean, everyone can thrive, right? And everyone can have their opportunities, their chances, and they can live with dignity. That's, how, you know, what we are trying to do with our international cooperation. And that will, that will remain as our core. But we now understand we really have to work much more with the change of the environment because there are so many different actors with different values or maybe briefs. And uh, also there are a lot of new energies. I mean, you know, younger generations, new technologies. So we really have to see how we can, you know, make the most of such development yes. and make our cooperation more efficient and, of course, effective with limited resources. Yes, thank you. There, a decision was made by the current, by the Biden administration to establish um, this year a, a new regional office based in Tokyo. Uh, and um, this is a very interesting step, an important step as we're talking about strengthening cooperation between the two governments across the region, kind of important step. Important also for what it signals about the expansion of both Japanese and American engagement in working with partners. Say a little bit about how the Japanese government is looking at this decision. Do you see this as an opportunity, having this regional entity now in Tokyo? Definitely, definitely. We can have, you know, Continuous discussions going on. And also, I think also U.S. government will see much more complex reality on the ground if you are based in Tokyo. Yeah. I mean, for example, if we look at ASEAN countries, how we observe their situation. I mean, their relationship with China, their relationship with you know, Russia, their relationship with you know, Japan and the U.S. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not you know, black and white. So we do have to understand why it can't be black and white. And that, I believe, that Japan has been trying to understand, you know, trying to understand the situation of ASEAN because we have been a partner for such a long time. Japan tried, always tries to accommodate, to be flexible to their changing needs 
and their maybe anxiety. And now the ASEAN is more powerful. They are more confident. So how we can be the equal partner? And I think together in Tokyo, we have close communication with our U.S. counterparts. And we can really have you know, much more deeper dialogues continuously. And that will help that our partnership will really be contributing to you know, those regional stability, regional prosperity. I want to raise a couple of the issues that are big, looming issues that anyone dealing in health struggles with right now. There's a couple of them. One is climate change. I know you've, you've said uh, earlier in conversation, it's a puzzle. It bothers you in some ways that it could potentially crowd things out uh, that are important. But it's also something that the health impacts are becoming yes. more and more visible. And so th the concern with understanding what those impacts are and how to both mitigate them but also to adapt around them and integrate that dimension into health programming. How is JICA approaching this? All institutions, it seems to me, around the world that are involved in development are struggling with this question. Yes, you are right. You know, the, the risk on the health sector caused by climate change, it's, it's real. We have observed, you know, the expansion of malaria-infested areas, as well as other you know, mosquito-borne diseases, such as in dengue and Zika. A few years ago, we had this dengue fever cases in Tokyo, where we had never you know, had before. And also, we have observed this flood-related uh, cholera as seen in Southern Africa or South Asian countries. So, you know, these kind of risks are very real. So adaptation is very, very important. And we are working that, you know, seeing the change of this, this you know, disease pattern, we provide a new dimension of technical cooperation, you know, with the new trainings and so on mm -hmm. to kind of continuously upgrade people's skills and an understanding of the situation. Now about mitigation, I understand there's a discussions going on about, you know, the greenhouse gas emissions, about with health activities. But more than that, because JICA is working in many different sectors, we coordinate with other sectors to mitigate the situation. For example, we in Africa, we promote rice production because you know, they are facing an acute shortage of food. And we have this goal that we would like to double the production volume of rice in African continent. And now we have seen, or there is a study, that uh, with the rice, rice cultivation expansion, we have more cases in malaria. So, of course, in the health sector, in the areas where we did not have malaria cases before, but now we have these malaria cases. So we have to have the services you know, in these new areas so that we can provide prevention and also the treatment. But the cause is rice production. So we really have to consider how we can integrate this kind of, you know, consideration into our agricultural activities and promote coordination with health ministry and agriculture ministry. So the same thing we can say in climate change. So JICA works a lot in transportation sector or in you know, industry sectors, which will reduce, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and so on. So 
you know, in a way, we are trying to mainstream climate consideration into every area. But in case of health, I think we can do much more in a different sector where we are working as a JICA, that we are working in each country, trying to re you know, reduce, I mean, mitigate some of the, the root causes of climate changes. And in the health sector, at the same time, we can try to adapt to the situation. Yeah. Another problem, another big problem that we all struggle with and, and we don't have really good answers for is disinformation, anti-science sentiment, conspiracy thinking. This is leading to a decline in trust and confidence in governments. It's leading to an enormous amount of confusion. It's putting stress on the communications capacities of governments and non-governments, really, in how do you better communicate what is real, what is the truth, uh, what, are the, what is the science that people will listen. And we seem to be at a moment now where there's greater recognition of this problem, but I'm not sure that we've settled on what the solutions are. How is this problem being thought out within China? Looking back our experience with COVID-19, the initial challenge was in supply side, you know, the, with the provision of vaccine. And it was very disappointing that we in developed countries could not demonstrate our solidarity with the global south, you know, by holding back vaccines to, to our side. However, as we moved along, it became more of a demand side challenge, mm -hmm. including health system challenges, which made timely delivery very difficult and vaccine hesitancy among people due to, you know, misinformation and or disinformation. And dealing with misinformation or disinformation was a very big challenge even before the vaccine became available, such as, you know, for example, effectiveness of wearing masks. You know, there was certain, you know, tendency, hesitancy, but which actually proved to be effective. Or some of the repurposed drugs, such as, you know, ivermectin, which turned out to be ineffective in this case. And dangerous. Yes. So we need better ways of coordinating clinical and epidemiological research to have an adequate ability to reach conclusion with statistical confidence, right? And we need more experts in risk communication. How are we going to communicate these science-based results in an easy understanding message? So, you know, this is a professional work and we need more of these kind of people. And in addition, we should not forget that many in lower and middle income countries, the frontline health workers, such as community health workers and community nurses, they serve as a trusted source of information. And investing in these people and the service they deliver, which is primary health care, Improving the quality of the services and the knowledge base of these frontline officers, that will nurture the trust from the community they serve. And this has to be done from the you know, ordinary times. And if these kind of trust are accumulated when the pandemics or emergency hits, these people can be the trusted source. And if we could deliver this scientific-based information in an easy, understanding manner to these frontline officers, we hope 
that they will be able to, you know, deliver the message to the community. So we do need to have trust among communities and institutions. And the keys are frontline offices. So we need to invest more to have empower them improve their professional, you know, capacity. And of course, it's not the easy solution. And, you know, with this new digital tools, with SNS, you know, even developing countries, it's very, very popular. So we, we do not have the clear, you know, or magic wand. But I think the first thing we can do is empowering those you know, community or frontline front officers who will have the trust from the community. And of course, we need a professional. For example, in Ghana, the head of virology department of the Noguchi Memorial Institute for Medical Research, which Jake has been supporting for over 40 years, he regularly appeared on TV and became the voice of science and delivered, you know, continued to deliver the message. So having this kind of professional who can really speak in front of people, communicate, mm-hmm. it's very important. And he, he obtained, you know, degrees from Japanese universities. And I'm sure that there are a lot of professionals who, who, who were trained in the U.S. also. You know, we really should try to keep, you know, empowering them so they can also be the good communicator with a professional capacity. And having these people in numbers, it's very, very important, I think. Just listening to you, two things came to mind that I wanted to raise. One is that during the pandemic, Japan did very, very well in managing. It took a tough zero-COVID approach. It reopened in a reasonably orderly way. The numbers of fatalities remained very low. And you didn't have the same problems of declining trust. You did not have the politicization to the same degree. You had some. You had some, but less than you would think. The other thing that came to mind was, you know, in 2013, you had the problem emerge as you were introducing the vaccine with adolescent girls on HPV. You had this episode with the young girls that were having a, a body experience, and then the anti-vaccine movements capitalized on this, and it became very problematic. And it's only just recently have you been able to get things back on track to get your numbers up. And that was kind of you know, a lot of people were concerned about that and asking, well, why? This seems to be a society that trusts its government in certain ways, but maybe it doesn't in other ways. Maybe their vaccine histories, histories of vaccines with problems that people don't have that much trust. I just wanted you to comment a little bit on Japanese society itself and what did the pandemic show us? I would say that Japanese society has a quite a deep trust in our health system. I mean, from early childhood, I mean, even before we were born, you know, we have this famous maternal and child handbook. And, you know, it's, for us, it's a regular exercise to visit, you know, the local clinic for obtaining the the services for prevention, like vaccines and so on. And uh, it continues until, you know, we became adults. So we know that uh, Japan has tried this, you know, universal health coverage actually in our country since 1960s, and which was quite successful 
now Japan is one of the countries where we have the, the longest long, you know, longevity in the world. And we do understand our public health system made this possible. So we have very pride and confidence. Yes, in our system itself. I mean, of course, there are a lot of, we also saw a lot of you know, disinformation, misinformation during the pandemic. But in a deep, deep layer of the society, I think there is still distrust mm-hmm. that we can trust our system. In, at least our health system is still serving us good. Of course, there are a lot of you know, problems that we need to be changed, but still, we do have it. And that, that is because we have this experience from the very early childhood. We, have, we often meet with health workers or doctors. We have consultation. And you know, we understand with our experience, it, it does function. I want to close with one tough issue which we all struggle with, which is how to deal with China in this context, right? We know that we're in an intensifying confrontation. We know that certainly the U.S. relationship with China is at the lowest point we've ever seen it, and it may get lower. I mean, there seems to be a lot of fatalism, a lot of pessimism around around that. Let's hope that is not true. But uh, it's been it's been very bumpy. We know that some of what's happening with within the U.S. Japan relationship in the broader regional security relationship is is centered on a kind of geopolitical awareness of China's rising influence and like. But we also know that we have to be constructive in dealing with China where possible. It, you cannot prepare for the next major threat without paying attention to what's going on. China to have some form of invasion. But that's easier said than done oftentimes. We know all of the problems around COVID origin stalemate and the lack of sharing and lack of transparency and the like. How do you see this matter? It's a very, very difficult matter, I'm sure, for you, where you are, where you sit, how Japan is positioned geographically. How are you thinking about this right You've had a long historical relationship with facilities, yes. with hospitals, clinics yes. inside China. Yes, yes. As you said, it's, it's very difficult, no straight answer, because they sometimes behave on the different rules. But we need to keep them engaged and you know, try to show the international rules does contribute to China also. And I'm a development worker, and from my perspective, the China's resources and China's capacity in R&D or production, that's very important. I mean, with the scarce limited resources on our side, if we can tap the resources of China in a better way, that would help the work, right? So we need to have continuous dialogue and we have to show that we will be engaged as long as we can find the common ground. And there are a lot of areas that Japan cooperated with China in health, in law enforcement, in environmental protection, and so on. And there are human networks. There are experts in China who studied or worked in Japan in this area and learned a lot and built relationship, human relationship with Japanese counterparts and their Japanese experts who understand China and who contributed to China and who have this strong personal, you know, network with Chinese experts. 
So JICA tries to encourage this kind of human network continue. And on the practical level, there are a lot of areas we can cooperate. So in a very small manner, maybe in the beginning, we keep dialogue going on. We keep small cooperation going on so that we can develop some kind of trust. And I hope that that will also, in a way, we, we will be able to utilize in the cooperation in other countries. We have the regular dialogue with our Chinese counterparts. Mm -hmm. So maybe in a very sh short time framework, we would not be able to have, you know, the, for example, joint project. But there are a lot of information exchange and dialogues going on. So we will be able to find a common ground where we can work together. We like to close by asking our guests to tell us what gives you in this period in time. We're in the post-acute phase. We're still in a pandemic, but in a di much different moment in time. You've been very generous in sharing with us you know, your thoughts across all of these different areas. What gives you the greatest hope and the greatest optimism today? The crisis always give us the chance to change ourselves. And there are a lot of things that we could harness during the pandemic, right? New technologies. But even within my organization, we went through a lot of reforms and changes because we wanted to cope with this, you know, emergent situation. And that gave me the confidence that we will have the flexibility and ability to adapt ourselves into the new environment. And I also saw a lot of strength in our partner countries. For example, in COVID-19, during the COVID-19, we struggled ourselves. And some of the developed countries went through a lot of difficulties with so many casualties and so on. And there are countries in global south which really managed the situation well with their very limited resources. And that gave me a lot of hope that their strengths are real. And we can really build on the new foundation with, with their strengths. So they are the real partners, not someone who just learn or get finance from developed countries, but we are equal partners. We can learn from them. So we can challenge, you know, we can tackle the challenge together. That gives me a lot of hope that we have more partners to be aligned. We have more knowledge to be shared, diverse experiences to be shared. So in this you know, rapidly changing, changing world, it really makes us position well to, to move ahead with so many partners in different parts of the world. So I hope that we can really convert this crisis into the new opportunities that we are going to create a better or equitable world for, for everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending this time with us today. This has really been a terrific conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.